On the DPP side, I think it is rooted in this idea of decolonial or anti-colonial framework, which is that Taiwan's history has been that of successive waves of colonization, and that the people who live on the island have never been fully in charge of their own destiny. Even today, you know, sort of in the international stage, and this is one of the big claims of the pro-independence faction, that even in the international sphere, China is always blocking all of its attempts at more political recognition on the international stage. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. My guest today is Albert Wu. Albert is a research fellow at the Institute of History and Philology at the Academica Sinica in Taipei. He is a global historian who has written about the spread of religion and different regimes of public health around the world. But he is also a particular expert on the history of Taiwan. And so for today's installment of The Good Fight, I thought that I would ask him to explain the recent elections in Taiwan, but more importantly, to help us understand the long-run history of the island, something that in all of the news articles and in all of the op-eds about cross-trades tensions, the future of the island, its relationship to mainland China, all too often gets lost. Talking to Albert about Taiwan when I spent some time there last year really helped me understand the place a little bit better and I hope that he can do the same for you today. Albert Wu, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here, Yasha. Well, I really look forward to this conversation. We spoke a lot about Taiwan and its history when I was visiting the island last year. And so I really look forward to you sharing some of your knowledge and wisdom about it. I do actually want to go through a little bit of Taiwan's history, but we're speaking a few days after an important election in Taiwan. So to people who don't know anything about the island other than some headlines about cross-straits tensions and whatever newspapers tend to say in the United States and in Europe, what just happened in the election and what's the importance of that? The top line news is that the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, won its sort of historic third consecutive term. Prior to this, there had basically since 1996, when direct presidential elections were held, no party had held more than two terms. So there was this sort of law in Taiwanese politics that every two terms there would be a shift in political party. So it is unprecedented in that the DPP won its third consecutive term. But if you dig a little deeper, I think almost every single party won or they can claim some sort of victory. So the DPP wanted the presidency. The KMT, which is the main opposition party, the Kuomintang, they didn't get a majority in the legislature or in the parliament, but they became the largest party in parliament with one more seat than the DPP. The DPP had previously held the majority in parliament, so they can claim a sort of victory there. But the other big winner is this new party called the Taiwan People's Party, called the TPP. And they, with almost no party apparatus, they're a newly formed party. 
they gained 25% of the votes in, in the president. So they had a really good showing in the presidential campaign, even though they didn't win anything. But they sort of become now the kingmakers in parliament because they have eight members in parliament. And so anybody who wants to get some legislation passed will need to go to the TPP and they can, the TPP can be sort of kingmakers. And it's sort of an unprecedented uh, situation in parliament as well, because Taiwan really doesn't have much experience with coalition governments or people like forming coalitions. So everybody's sort of like, how, how is this going to happen? So everybody is a little bit confused about what's going to happen. Everybody is trying to claim victory. Tell us a little bit about the stakes of this. The Guomingdang is a party that always has been puzzling to me because it is, of course, the successor party of the ruling party in mainland China until the communist revolution. It fought a bloody civil war with the communist party into the 1940s, then became the governing party of Taiwan, that it sort of fled to the, the island and it was sort of the last place that it was able to sustain itself, not being crushed by the communists. But now, strangely, it is the Guomingdang, the, the KMT, that is seen as being much more pro-Beijing, much more pro-CCP in a way. And it is the DPP that is seen as being much more favorable towards Taiwanese independence. So tell us a little bit about the upshot of these elections for Taiwan's future and why it is that these parties have come to occupy this space. If you read most headlines, they'll say pro-independence party DPP wins this third consecutive term. And in many senses, that that is correct. And in some ways, the way to frame it is that voters were given a choice between more of a pro-U.S or a more, more pro-China foreign policy. And by giving the DPP a third consecutive term, one can say that the voters chose a pro, more pro-US-leaning policy or more anti-China policy. And I think that is correct to some extent, but I think the reason why the DPP, even though it won at the presidential election but lost at the legislative election, is that domestic policy issues sort of outweighed foreign policy issues this time, which is the 25%. A lot of people were concerned about stagnant wages or the perception of stagnant wages, of high housing prices, um, so sort of bread and butter economic issues. But I think you're, you put your finger right on the money in the sense that the long story, there, there's several long stories. One is that the DPP once was the underdog party. They were the dissidents to an authoritarian regime led by the KMT. And so you have a transformation of a, a dissident party of people who were on the outside. Many of the founders of the DPP spent 10 years or more in jail. The transformation of that party into the establishment party, right? So now that they're 12 years in power, so there's this transformation of a sort of revolutionary I mean, a lot of them had sort of anti-colonial roots, anti-authoritarian, pro-democracy roots, and now they've transformed into an establishment party. But the other big story, it really is a big story, is the transformation of the KMT uh, itself. And like you said, I mean, this was a party that had almost 
40 years of authoritarian rule over the over the island. It was a single party Stalinist style regime. One of the interesting facts that you told me when we were discussing this, and I may be butchering the details here, is that John Kai-shek, of course, was the ruler for the first period of KMT's dominance in Taiwan. And I believe he had a number of children and he sent some of them to, you know, one of them perhaps to the United States and he sent one of them to study at Moscow Normal University. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Jiang Jingguo, who succeeded Chiang Kai-shek, was trained in, in the Soviet Union, had a Russian wife. And so many of his policies in the late 70s, or early 80s, after Chiang Kai-shek died, were sort of on this socialist model or USSR model of sort of national infrastructural development and all these sorts of things. But for much of the two Chengs, they call it uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his son Jiang Jingguo, much of their regimes, Taiwan was seen as a quote-unquote client state of the United States. They received a lot of foreign military aid from the United States. Taiwan was considered on the front lines in the Cold War in, in terms of this domino theory and that there was a lot of U.S. military aid, but also U.S. foreign aid into Taiwan. And the KMT was considered a close ally to the U.S. And basically after 2000, the U.S., after the KMT lost its first major presidential election, it almost overnight, I mean, not overnight, but very quickly switched courses and became more pro-China. So in 2000, the DDP wins the presidential election and the KMT is out in the opposition for the first time. How is it that at that point they come to have a rapprochement with the historical enemy, with the CCP? It's really a fascinating story, and I think historians are going to be writing about this for a long time. But like you said, in 2000, the KMT lost power for the first time. And for the first term, this is under President Tsen Shui-bian and the DPP, the KMT's idea was that they would wait it out. But in 2004, they lost again. And the moment after they lost the election in 2004, I think the KMT came to the realization that, okay, something has shifted in the political landscape in Taiwan. And the moment after that they lost the election in 2004, they started party-to-party -party talks with the CCP. And their whole idea was exactly like you were saying, this this framework that we are still part of one China, but we just have different interpretations of what that one China is. And this is rooted in the 1992 consensus. So there was a consensus that was sort of hashed out between the CCP and the KMT. But there's an idea that we're both going to refer to ourselves as one China, but we just have different interpretations of what that one China is. And I think a lot of it was because the KMT was afraid that the pro-independence faction was going to get more and more power in Taiwan. So it was, a, it was an attempt to sort of take the sails out of the DPP. And the CCP essentially said, as long as you don't buy into this 92 consensus, we're not going to deal with you. And so it, it was a way for the CCP also to cut out the DPP from the economic benefits that came from having deals with China. And the other thing to remember is that in 2004, this was a moment when everybody in the world still believed in this idea that with more liberalization, China would become a, a good actor 
for sort of normalizing China into the global trade system, but also political system. And it really was after Xi Jinping came to power that there was a shift, I think, in terms of how the global political sphere also started to see China as an actor in that stage, on the global stage. So I feel like we're peeling onions here because to understand this election, you have to understand the history of a KMT. To understand the history of a KMT, you have to understand the history of the Republic of Taiwan. And so it sort of becomes more and more broad. But tell us a little bit about the transition to democracy. So the KMT arrives on the island when they are fleeing the mainland in the 1940s. Explain to us the conflict over, first of all, whether or not Taiwan is simply a part of mainland China, but it's geographically distinct as an island that is culturally and linguistically a natural part of China, or the idea that it may in fact be more significantly distinct. And on, of the policies that the KMT implemented in Taiwan when they arrived, and why it is that those policies were not just authoritarian, but quite brutal towards the pre-existing local population, including both some native Taiwanese people, but also Han Chinese people who have been living on the island for many centuries. One way to think about Taiwanese history is that it, there's successive regimes of colonization ever since the 1600s. And so there's a period of Dutch colonization, there's a brief period of Portuguese colonization. But the massive wave of Han Chinese migrants come in the wake of the end of the Ming Dynasty. So the Qing Dynasty is formed in 1644. And these are sort of Manchu invaders who come and establish the Qing Dynasty. And they, the loyalists to the previous dynasty, essentially establish a base in Taiwan. And then the Qing comes and basically kicks out those Ming loyalists and establishes control over part of the island. They never control all of the island. For example, they never control all of the mountains. They're really sort of on the coasts. But you can say that the Qing has control of Taiwan all the way up until 1895, when it loses a, a major battle to the Japanese. Just to pause here for a moment. So during those centuries, Taiwan was ruled in a sense from, I suppose, Beijing, from the center of the then Chinese empire. And over the course of these centuries, people who are ethnically Han come to be already the majority on the island? I mean, there's still an, an indigenous population that's there that far outnumbers that of the Han settlers, but they establish some sort of equilibrium. But there is a lot of uh, migration that comes in primarily through the southern provinces of Fujian, just right across the Taiwan Strait. And then many of them actually end up also going further down south towards places like modern-day Malaysia and Indonesia. But yeah, in terms of the political control of the island, it is a province of the Qing, Qing dynasty, or sort of what we would call a province, but it's sort of an entity within the Qing empire. And so for those 200, 250 years, Taiwan looks like a geographically outlying but integral part of a Qing dynasty. But then we come to 1895, and what happens then? This is when Japan is also embarking on its path of modernization. But in the 1840s and 50s, Japan, like China, had come into contact with European imperialism, European and American imperialism, and they basically force open 
both China and Japan, and Japan modernizes very quickly. China's also modernizing, but they get into a battle, into a war, and Japan defeats the Qing Empire. And as part of the deal to end the war, Taiwan is given over to Japan as a, as a colony. And from 1895 onwards, Japan begins this process of integrating Taiwan into the Japanese empire. And, and, and Taiwan becomes sort of a model colony for Japan. So it builds railways. There were railways already built by the Qing, but it continues to build, build railways. There's a lot of really valuable forests in, in Taiwan. So it develops a, a lumber industry in, in Taiwan, but it also, you know, creates uh, universities and all these different sorts of things. And it gives Taiwanese people a pathway to rise through the ranks and go study in Japan and then come back. So, so there's a level of integration of Taiwan into the Japanese colony. And there are also some very brutal conflicts between the Japanese imperialists and indigenous populations. So they treated the Han population better than the indigenous populations. But in the Qing dynasty, the mountains, for example, were not open did not come under to the under Qing governance, but during the Japanese period, they went into the mountains and there, there was this really intense conflict between the Japanese colonial government and the indigenous populations. So one of the things that I found fascinating to learn when I was in Taiwan was about this period of Japanese domination of the island. And I want to understand something in particular, which is that a lot of the people I spoke to in Taiwan had a surprisingly positive view of Japanese colonialism on the island. I mean, certainly if you go to Korea, I think it would be incredibly hard to find anybody who would have anything positive to say about the period of Japanese dominance and colonialism in Korea, in the Korean peninsula. In Taiwan, it is perfectly common. I mean, I spoke to Uber drivers and other people who would spontaneously talk about how there was positive aspects to the Japanese dominance of Taiwan. Help me to explain that. Is that because, as you were saying, first of all, this was relatively early in the development of imperial Japan. And so perhaps the kind of attitudes and some of the policies that Japan pursued in the very late 19th century and early 20th century was different from how it treated its colonial possessions by the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s? Is that a sort of misplaced nostalgia among parts of the Taiwanese population for some sort of distant past? I found it very striking. It's hard to me to find parallels of such fond memories for colonialism in other places of the world where I've spoken to people about it. It's really a mixed, ambiguous feeling. I think part of it was Japanese colonial policy, which is that Japan, like other European empires, adopted a sort of racial ladder or a racial hierarchy, and Taiwanese were ranked higher than Koreans. So Koreans were treated much more brutally than Taiwanese. Uh, Taiwanese had pathways through the Japanese empire, but also compared to other holdings or other colonies that Japan had, you know, Taiwan was was sort of so Taiwanese people were treated better than these other colonial possessions. But I think it also had to do with the fact that Japan really did develop Taiwan in terms of its infrastructure. So, for example, a lot of the train stations, the major railways are all from the Japanese period. One 
still very popular uh, rail railroad goes up through the mountains of Alisan, and those were developed by the Japanese. And one of the reasons why there's a certain nostalgia among a certain population in Taiwan is that the first sort of democratic institutions in Taiwan can be dated to the 1920s when there was a brief moment of what was called Taisho democracy in Japan, where political parties were allowed to form. And the first sort of Taiwanese political parties, first Taiwanese political institutions were formed in that moment. What's ironic, though, is that in the 1920s, when these political parties formed, most of these Taiwanese considered themselves Chinese. They, they, they considered themselves, in terms of their identity, as opposed to Japan. So these political parties were formed in opposition to the Japanese political regime. And so most of these parties that, you know, were formed in the 1920s and 30s, they considered themselves as, you know, sort of Chinese and as in opposition to, to the Japanese. But I think the real reason why there was nostalgia is because of the regime that came after. So that's a perfect clue to fast forward, right? So the Guomingdang lose the civil war on the mainland of China. They find refuge on the island of Taiwan. It's sort of where they go to, I mean, in many cases, literally to escape death at the hands of the victorious communists. And they proceed to want to turn the island of Taiwan into the Republic of Taiwan that they've just lost on the mainland. But they face, I suppose, two problems. The first problem is an indigenous population that they see as not being, you know, Han Chinese as being somehow a threat or perhaps in some sense in their mind inferior. And then secondly, they face the problem of this Japanese influence that has ruled the island for at that point, I suppose, a little bit over 50 years, so a very long period of time. And so that, I think, helps to explain why it is that the Guomingdang, even for their co-ethnics of most of the people who live in Taiwan by 1948, act in some ways as conquerors, and perhaps some people might argue, as kind of imperial oppressors. So tell us about what those early years and decades of the Guomingdang regime in Taiwan look like. Yeah, so in 1945, when Japan loses the war, the Allies turn over Taiwan to the KMT. Well, you know, previously it was part of the Qing dynasty, but the Qing dynasty had dissolved by 1911. But in 1945, exactly like you were saying, because of the 50 years of Japanese colonization, the locals welcome the KMT like victors. You know, they, there are photos of people just waving the KMT flag. They were they were celebrated. And in 1945, because of because of this sort of 50 years of what they perceived as oppression by the Japanese. But pretty quickly, because of the continuing civil war between the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese nationalists or the Kuomintang, the situation on the island got really bad. There was really bad inflation. There were public safety problems. And in 1947, there was an uprising in Taiwan. It was sparked by a woman who was selling cigarettes on, on the street. And it was, it was sort of an illegal there was a monopoly on cigarettes and tobacco and alcohol, and she was selling stuff on the street. And a policeman sort of hit the woman, and an angry crowd basically rose up. And basically, there was an uprising all around the island. 
And the KMT, so this is 1947, this is the infamous, an infamous uh, moment in Taiwanese history. Uh, the KMT called in its troops and squashed the uprising in 1947. And in the process, basically used the opportunity to get rid of a lot of the local elites that had been trained under the Japanese period. But it also went on a purge of suspected leftists. And this is in the, in the moment as the civil war and between the Chinese Communist Party and the, the Chinese nationalists was really heating up or right in the throes of it. And immediately after, in the wake of this 228 incident, where the, the numbers are still unclear, but you know, I think we're talking in tens of thousands of people were just executed or, or killed, the KMT established martial law. And that martial law essentially would last all the way until 1987. And this was even before the entire retreat. So in 1949, when they lost the Civil War in China, more than 2 million people uh, sort of flooded as refugees from China to Taiwan. So in 47, there was already sort of this assault on the legitimacy of the KMT itself. And then you have this influx of all of these people from all over China, right? All from different provinces, they speak different dialects, and they flood all the way in, into Taiwan because of the loss on the mainland. And uh, and it's, it's not like they're coming to Taiwan because they were victorious, right? It's because they, they, had, they had lost in this war. So that's part of what explains why the KMT had to, well, not had to, but, you know, why they, they went embarked on this authoritarian turn, because they were a minoritarian force trying to govern. First of all, all these different people are flooding into the island, and they don't know who's, whether people are friend or foe. But also you have this local population that had already distrust towards this government. And so in the 50s and, and 60s, the KMT had this incredibly repressive regime. So I want to go deeper into some of the cultural and, and social history here, which I find fascinating, but just to establish the basis of a geopolitical setup that we're continuing to deal with today. So in 1945, Taiwan is handed over to what is then the Chinese government, and so the Guomingdang come to be in charge, as you say. The Guomingdang then lose the civil war against the Communist Party in 1949 on the mainland. Why is it that the Communist Party at that point doesn't try to take over the island of Taiwan? I mean, we are at the end of the civil war. The communists are victorious in every part of China. Why is it that they're not victorious in Taiwan? And how does that lead to this strange split in which both the Communist Party and the Guomingdang claim to be the legitimate governors of all of China, while splitting up, in a regional sense, the control they have, in which, of course, the CCP ends up in control of the bulk of China and on the mainland, and the Guomingdang end up in control of the island of Taiwan, while at least initially, notionally continuing each of them to claim that they are a legitimate government of the entire entity. Why is it that the communists don't try to conquer the island at the end of the civil war, and how does that set up Taiwan's strange international status for the decades that follow? I think they want to. And in the 50s, there are uh, several uh, attempts, so, well, you know, sort of famous artillery battles. But the real reason is because of the solidification of the in the Cold War and the way that 
the Korean War goes, which is basically the Chinese Communist Party send troops across the Yalu River in the Korean War and divert a lot of their troops to help with that situation. And essentially, they're sort of split and, and unable to take Taiwan. And it really is because of the intervention of the U.S. in the Korean War and their threats by General MacArthur to use uh, nuclear bombs. Harry Truman says, no, we can't, use, we can't use nukes in this situation. But it's because of the, the way that the Korean War goes and that there's a split between North Korea and South Korea. And that becomes sort of a model where both the U.S. The U.S. also says, okay, well, if there's sort of a split situation on the Korean Peninsula, then, then maybe the situation in terms of China and the mainland and then this free, free China on Taiwan, that becomes a sort of an acceptable situation. But then throughout that period, the representative for China in the United Nations is the Republic of China on Taiwan, right? So, so they are the representatives in the UN. They get full, full backing from the US. And geopolitically, it really is until the 70s when basically the PRC enters into the UN and Chiang Kai-shek withdraws from the UN. So all, all roads lead back to the, as of recently, late Henry Kissinger, which is to say that it is with ping-pong diplomacy and Nixon going to China that the US agrees to allow the CCP to represent China and the United Nations. And that is when the international status of uh, the Taiwanese government becomes much more precarious. Is that right? Right, exactly. But it doesn't take until 79 for the U.S. to switch. And it's really under Carter that the direct relationship with Taiwan is formally ended. But then there's this sort of uh, Taiwan Defense Act that they form as like a, a compromise afterwards, which which is sort of our current setup, where the U.S. is still providing a lot of military aid, but there's no actual sort of defense agreements or any treaties like that with Taiwan. And so for people who are confused in the simplest possible term, what is Taiwan's international status right now? It is considered a self-governing island. It has, I think it has 13 diplomatic countries that formally recognize it and have a diplomatic relationship, but we just lost one. So maybe it's either 13 or 14, but it's excluded from international, all international organizations like the United Nations, the WHO. It's in the WTO though, uh, the World Trade Organization. So it has all of these sort of informal links, but most countries in the world do not recognize Taiwanese sovereignty and consider it as part of the one China principle and how they how they understand that is sort of very vague and ambiguous. And the ambiguity here is sort of part of the point, right? So when we come to sort of discussions about the different visions for the future of Taiwan within the island today, help us to explain the difference between the KMT and the DPP, because on the kind of slightly caricature reading, which journalists writing about Taiwan aren't exactly guilty of in the major newspapers around the world, but they can sort of create the impression of it. It might sound as though the KMT these days is effectively on the side of some form of reunification or of open to the CCP having some amount of control over 
Taiwan and the DDP just wants to declare independence and be a completely independent country. My understanding is that the actual debate is rather more subtle than that, that both political parties in some ways are saying that, well, we are de facto self-governing, but there's no need for some kind of formal declaration of independence, which is seen as very likely to provoke immediate retaliation from the CCP in Beijing. So what actually is the debate about the option set for the Taiwanese government going forward? And how does that play into these broader social divisions? I think the central claim is still sort of a question of, do we represent China? I think, for so for the KMT, its longstanding position is that they are still China. They're the Republic of China, and that they speak for all Chinese people. And then there's this dream, and there was the, the dream during the, the Chiang Kai-shek era was that they would one day reclaim the mainland. They would go back. You know, they had basically been usurped by the Chinese Communist Party, and that one day they would reclaim the mainland and be the rightful sort of representatives of all of China. And the KMT has, has changed over the years, but there still ultimately is this claim that the KMT has towards sort of representing all, all of China. And the difference here is that the, the DPP sort of started, which started as this opposition to the KMT was starting from the seventies, eighties was starting to define itself as something different from China, that its identity was rooted in the island itself rather than some form of Chineseness that represented all of all of Chinese people. And so the DPP's ultimate goal is this idea of Taiwanese independence, that Taiwan is an independent country separate from China. And that actually corresponds more to the, like exactly like you were saying, more to the reality of the situation on the ground, that Taiwan is de facto separate and a separate in, independent country from China. It has its own, as we just discussed, it has its own president, right? It has its own parliament. It has free and fair elections, a set of institutions, so on and so forth that are separate from, from China. But none of those institutions are recognized by international organizations. Those are the two major differences. So one way that I've tried to make sense of this, right, because again, the basic puzzle of Taiwan's history since 1945 is how you have the Guomingdang come in in a bloody, I mean, extremely violent civil war with the CCP, and yet over time come to be the domestic political force in Taiwan that seems to be closest to the CCP. And we left off earlier the story of what happens once the DDP is able to challenge martial law and the dictatorship of the Guomingdang and force real elections in the 1990s and actually win and capture the presidency in 2000. And I look forward to you telling that part of the story. But I think there's also something that perhaps is informed by a vague analogy how I think about Hegel or perhaps helps me to explain Hegel, which is the old idea of a thesis and the antithesis and the synthesis, which is always a little bit abstract and unclear. But I think here has some amount of obvious utility, which is to say that if the CCP is the thesis and the Guomindang is the antithesis, there are important dimensions on which they oppose each other. But to oppose each other that cleanly, they actually have to have background assumptions that are shared. And the background assumptions here are that the mainland and the island of Taiwan are part of one natural 
cultural and geopolitical entity and that they should be ruled together. And of course, there are some striking cultural similarities between the CCP and the Guomindang. One of the things I was struck by when I went to the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial in Taipei is that it looks rather strikingly like the mausoleum, like the shrine to Mao in the center of Beijing. So they are political forces that are shaped at a similar time, that are authoritarian, that actually share a good number of broader cultural attitudes as well. And so even as they have this profound disagreement about who should rule greater China, they actually share a conception of what China is and even some of those broader ideas. And then the DPP has historically, as I understand it, often been the political representation and the voice for people who had been on the island before 1945. It has its strongholds among people whose history on Taiwan is going back much further. One of the things I was struck by when I was in Taiwan is a few middle-aged people, sometimes older people, referring to the fact that they were in mixed marriages. And the first time they said that, I thought, what do you mean by that? I understand what a mixed marriage is in the United States, or perhaps in Northern Ireland, it means somebody who's Irish and somebody who's Catholic on the one side or Protestant on the other. I, I didn't know what they meant in Taiwan, but they clarified that it meant that one of the parents had been on the island who had ancestors who had been on the island for centuries, and one of the parents had arrived in the 1940s. And that to them was a mixed marriage. So tell me, and I know you have some amount of sympathy to that side, what is the case for Taiwan being, in some senses, an independent nation? Why shouldn't we think of Taiwan as a place that was ruled for centuries by the Qing dynasty, that is majority Han Chinese, whose language for this, a local dialect that is spoken by many people, is you know effectively Putonghua or the Taiwanese dialect of it, but it's not more sim more dissimilar than various regional dialects within the mainland is to Putonghua. Why are some people on the island saying this is not just an ideological conflict? It's not just that we don't want to be ruled by the CCP. One should think of the island as being more significantly independent. So I come from one of these mixed marriages. So my parents. One side is many generations on the island, and my mother's side, for example, came in 1949. My my grandfather was a, a soldier for the KMT, and I think I think the KMT argument is that exactly like you said, Taiwan has traditionally been part of this larger political entity, which is China, and with it comes a whole host of cultural cultural legacies, you know, a connection to so-called 5,000 years of history, a connection to sort of this literary culture, connection to all of these different ideas, whether it be Confucian values, ideas about respect for your parents, respect for all of these uh, sort of the sovereign, more broadly sort of Confucian ideas, but also all of these different cultural institutions that we associate with China or that we, that we learn about from from China, and I think on the on the DPP side, I think it is rooted in this idea of decolonial or anti-colonial framework, which is that Taiwan's history has been that of successive waves of colonization, and that the sort of whether however we define indigenous, but the people who live on the island have never been fully in charge of their own destiny. And even even today, you know, sort of in the international stage, and this is one of the big claims of sort of the pro-independence faction, 
that even in the international sphere, China is always blocking all of its attempts at more political recognition recognition on the international stage. But I, I think at the heart of it, the DPP from the 80s onwards, its roots really were in this dream, one of sort of pro-democracy, like getting rid of all of the apparatuses of martial law, more freedom of speech, for example, really sort of uh, protection for individual rights, um, these liberal ideals. But there was a certain faction of the DPP also that was very much committed to the ideals of social democracy and collective action, right? So it really just wanted to have everybody's vote <laughs> counted. And I think that is connected to the independence issue. But I think those are sort of at the core of the DPP. So even in this election cycle, you you would hear the DPP basically saying, we're on the path to democracy, that Taiwan's path towards democracy has not been finished, but that the DPP has always been sort of a defender of democracy or a proponent of democracy and that it's continuing on this path. What do you make of concerns that some people may have in bad faith, but some, some people I think have in good faith, that the victory of the DPP may increase the likelihood of the Communist Party trying to finally bring Taiwan under its control. The theory, as I understand it, broadly goes that the government in Beijing can live with a government in Taiwan that has come to have respectful relations with it. It regards the Guomindang as a known entity that insists on the idea that China is one space and they are no longer fearful that somehow a Taiwanese prime minister of Guomindang may come to Beijing and take over mainland China that is out of the picture. And so actually they can work with each other and that might delay any decision by Xi Jinping to bring the island of Taiwan under his control as he has indicated he would like to do as part of his legacy. On the other hand, if the government of Taiwan is more independence-minded, comes from a political movement but has in the last decades been less friendly to Beijing. If China comes to feel that it is about to lose the island of Taiwan definitively, as perhaps Vladimir Putin came to fear about Ukraine, that may precipitate an assault on the island, whether that's an actual invasion or perhaps more likely some form of naval blockade. Do you think that there's some validity to those fears? Is that misunderstanding the situation? How do you respond to that? I think it would be foolish not to put some weight in it. I think there's absolutely a possibility. And as you've shown in your work, um, oftentimes when dictators say something, they they tend to mean it, right? Uh, that they That they tend to be quite serious. On the one hand, I think China is serious about its and Xi Jinping is is serious about his desire to reunify Taiwan with China. And it would be seriously foolish not to take that threat seriously. And they've also backed it up with real action. It's not just talk. I mean, they do regular missile tests. They also have intervened in this current election and past elections to, and this election, they've, the amount of disinformation and the amount of interference has been off the charts, according to experts who work on misinformation. But I think, to be honest, the third victory for the DPP and sort of 
how public opinion polls have been going for the past 10 years or so, maybe even past 20, have shown an ongoing trend that people in Taiwan do not consider themselves part of China. And for a brief moment, there was this sort of dream of a peaceful unification with China, particularly from the years of 2008 to 2016, when Ma Ying-jeou was president of the KMT, was in power at the time, was this person named Ma Ying-jeou. There was real talks of a possible, if not some sort of federal solution or some sort of I think that ship has sailed, at least within the current landscape of politics. And I think the the reason why the KMT still continues to lose at the national level is because they they haven't totally understood how how the this sort of pro-China idea is really out of line with the mainstream public opinion. So I think the risk is definitely there. And so it is going to be a big question for the DPP how to manage manage that risk going forward. And also sort of the allies like the US and, and Japan. I have a more vague and more personal question to end the podcast with. I think one of the things that is difficult for people to understand when they talk about countries that have the unfortunate fate in history of being close to superpowers that aren't necessarily friendly to them is that they come to be abstractions, I think, to a lot of people. Ukrainians are abstractions, and it's easy to think, well, if it avoids the risk of some international conflict, then perhaps we should just hand over Ukraine to Russia without really thinking about the people who are there. I have to say that the time that I was able to spend in Taiwan last year has made me incredibly fond of the place and its people. And I just wonder whether you can try, and I know this is an impossible ask, to give some sense of, of the nature and the flavor of Taiwan. What is the place like? How is it similar and different to mainland China? What is special about it? Tell us something just to bring this wonderful place to life for us. What I've been really moved by the past couple of days is just how democratic culture really has come to take root here. So on Saturday, we went to the polls with my wife and her parents. And like many families, there are generational divides in Taiwan, but also political disagreements. And so we've we've long had political disagreements and we've talked about them. But on Saturday, we all went to the polls together and the polling station was a five minute walk from us. We took our little daughter with us. And I was just so moved because so this election, 70% of people turned out, which is actually considered sort of a low for Taiwan. Normally it's between 75 and 80, 85%, but you know, 70, 72% turned out. And when we got to the polls, there were multi-generational families, people pushing their elderly parents or grandparents. I'm sure many of them disagreed, but they just went to the polls and many of those people had lived for 40 years without ever having the chance to vote for their own president. I, there were always local elections, but people really take this privilege of being able to choose their elected leaders seriously. And it was an orderly, you know, people were just lining up. When I was growing up, election day was really just sort of 
chaotic mess. People were still campaigning outside, but uh, I sort of missed that personally, but because it was just really fun as a, as a kid, but everybody, everybody got the day off. So it's, it's a mandated, it was on Saturday. It just felt like a sacred day. And then afterwards in Taiwan, eating is very important. And what we did is we strolled to this hotel and had a really luxurious meal, but a really delicious and, and, and wonder, wonderful meal. And even though we disagreed politically, we sat down and ate and talked about the future of our country and our hopes and dreams and desires for the country. And even though we know we had some disagreements, everybody still sat down and chatted. And we just really cherished that moment of voting together and, and being together. And I think that that really is the heart of it. And then afterwards, towards later in, in the day, we went and now the vote counting is completely open and transparent. And this is also coming out of the 70s and 80s when there was a lot of ballot stuffing during the authoritarian era. And there was a lot of uh, shenanigans that would happen on election day. And what they do is they, they open up the voting booths and everybody can go and observe. And people will just open up the ballots and count them out. And it's almost like a song, you know, and it just feels very collective. And so we went and watched the vote counting. And so the polls closed at four. By 7.30, all the votes were counted. And the two presidential candidates who, who lost gave concession speeches. And by 9.30, we had a, had a new president. And there was just this wonderful victory rally and all this confetti. And what really moved me is that by the end of the victory rally, everybody stayed behind and picked up confetti, right? They wanted to keep the streets clean. They picked up confetti. They stacked all of the chairs. And the next day, it was as if nothing nothing happened. It was just a part of the normal normalcy of every day. And I, I, and I, I think that's just sort of, it just gives you a taste of that. And I just think of my grandfather never in his life was able to vote for his own president. My grandmother died before the transition to a fully democratic country. And, and I think everybody, at least in my parents' generation and my generation, know that. And, and we really cherish that. And so I think that love for democracy is, is sort of baked into the current landscape. Abadou, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.